Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28 will be our text this morning. These three short verses really begin to summarize and conclude the argument of the superiority of Christ as our high priest. Uh, Beginning in chapter 4, the idea that Christ is our high priest and the office of Christ's high priesthood was introduced. And from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7, the discussion has been about, and the theme has been, centered around Christ being a better, a superior high priest. But these verses not only summarize and conclude the fact that Christ is a greater high priest, it really summarizes all that's come before it in the book of Hebrews. And so we see a summary statement, really a conclusion. We've reached the crescendo of that theme of Christ's priesthood here. We have seen why Christ is a superior priest as he comes from the line of Melchizedek not the line of Aaron. But the thing that we begin to see here uh, that takes place in this text is we're forced to actually think about not Melchizedek as a high priest, but about the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites that followed him. And what I mean by that is what they did as priests by example, are how we're supposed to picture Christ in heaven representing us. And so while we have seen that Christ is superior to the priesthood of Aaron, what we're now done, what we're forced to do in the text is to actually look at the priesthood of Aaron and say, what did those priests do? And then we see how Christ does it better. And how Christ does it not on an earthly temple, but does it in a heavenly temple temple. And so when we see the qualifications here of Christ's priesthood, we see what Christ does as our great priest. And so we will see here four things that I want to point out this morning, and that is that Christ is a sufficient high priest. He's a separated high priest. He is a sacrificial high priest, and he is a superior high priest. So let us hear this word of God. Beginning in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up Himself, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. We see beginning in this that Christ is a sufficient high priest. You'll notice that the text says, indeed, it was fitting. It was fitting, it is fitting that Christ is our high priest, and what it means to be fitting is that it was proper. It's proper that Christ is our high priest. And specific here, it's proper for the completion of the job that Christ was given as a high priest. So the text says, for indeed it was fitting. This is meaning that Christ was the proper one 
that was needed to accomplish the work. It's speaking of the rightness of his position, that it was fitting that he was our high priest. And the argument here that we see is God and the law made by way of law a way to have access to him. And God had them build the tabernacle. The Israelites build the tabernacle and he gave them prescriptions on how they could experience the presence of God amongst them. And that was all given by law. But we see that he shows and provides another way. Which means this is if he shows another way, the previous way itself was incomplete. The previous way of experiencing the presence of God amongst the people of God uh, was not sufficient. It was not perfect. As the text actually says, it was useless. It was a shadow. It was a type. It was to point forward to the greater reality of God's presence with his people. Meaning this is the old way, the tabernacle, the temple, the the Levitical priesthood actually was not a fitting way for the presence of God. And why that's important for us, because we're not looking to the Levitical priesthood, I don't think any of us are, the Hebrews were. The Hebrews were tempted to look back to that old covenant. In fact, the temple was probably still standing when the book of Hebrews was written. And they're looking back to that temple worship and thinking, I'd like to go back to that. We've experienced persecution. We've experienced difficult times. I think I want to go back to this works way of doing things. And so what we see is that Christ indeed was fitting, meaning the old way was not. It was not fitting for the presence of God amongst the people. But I want you to notice the, 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 the encouragement that comes with this to these broken Hebrews that are uh, facing trials. There's a note of encouragement here, and that is this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. In other words, if you are a Christian, you have Christ as your high priest. The text is telling us this, this fitting position of Christ is something we tangibly and in reality actually have. If you're a Christian, Christ is your high priest. That's an amazing encouragement after the warning passages that we have seen in the book of Hebrews. The warning passages, just by way of reminder, are some of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture because they seem to say that you could lose your salvation. It's not what they're saying because what we see in texts like this is actually the priesthood of Christ for the believer is a reality. So all that has been said about Christ is now a reality to the believer. All that has been said about the superior nature of Christ is available to us. This is what we have. What's been said? Well, let's just review. In chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, we see that the law could not bring about perfection. 
You could not reach perfection through the law. It wasn't available through the Levitical priesthood. You contrast that with what we have in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are perfected before God. That's something the law could never do. This is what you have in Christ. We have such a high priest that you can be counted perfectly righteous before God in heaven. You see in verses 15 through 17 that eternal life is brought forth through Christ, something that could not come about through the law. In fact, we see that Christ is a priest forever in those verses. So what you have is if you are in Christ, indeed it is fitting that we should have this high priest. It means you have an eternal high priest who will always be there for you. You didn't have that in the Old Covenant. That's something we have right now. We also see that we may be able to draw near to God in verses 18 through 19. It says that we can draw near to Him through Christ. That's not time-stamped, by the way. And what I mean by that is that you may draw near to God at any time because we have currently, right now, Jesus as our high priest. That means this, is if you are in Christ this morning, you have Christ as a high priest, and you may draw near to God eternally. You are counted as perfect because of His work. And you may, near, you may draw near to God at any time. You don't have to wait for sacrifices to be done. You don't have to wait till you have done certain things. You don't have to wait until you feel a certain amount of holiness. This is something we have. It's amazing that actually in those verses it says that the law there was weak and that it was useless. The law made nothing perfect, but in Christ we have a greater hope. This is what we have, friends. If you are suffering this morning, if you are dealing with the trials of life, you have a great high priest. That's a current reality. Through him, you may draw near to God right now. That's what we have in Christ. We also see that what we have in Christ is that he is immutably unchangingly our high priest. We see that in verses 20 through 22. Whereas the old covenant was incomplete and thus it was liable to change, and in fact it did change, what do we see about Christ as our priest? Not only is Christ eternally our high priest, Christ will never cease being our high priest. That will not change. Christ will always remain as our high priest. But there's something else about this, and this is most beautifully stated in verses 23 through 25. Christ is steady and continually interceding on our behalf. He ever lives to intercede on behalf of his church. That's something you have right now. So if you can just imagine this right now, as you picture the priest going into the inner sanctuary, offering on behalf of the people and interceding on behalf of the people, what this text tells us in those words we have is that we have that right now in Christ. Now you understand, 
how Christ is the fitting, the proper one for this role. For indeed, it was fitting we should have such a high priest. By this definition, it it speaks of Christ alone as our sufficient intercessor. We do not need to look for another. There's no other means by which we are going to have someone save us. There's no other means by which we're going to have someone intercede for us. It is Christ alone. So friends, if you know Christ, He has accomplished the work of atonement and He continues His work of intercession. And the Hebrews that, 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 they were, that Paul was writing to here, they, they were looking back onto an old system of law. They were looking back to the temple sacrifices. It's, it's not so much different for us either. We might not be looking back upon a temple. We may not be looking back on a Levitical priesthood. But we are oftentimes looking for our comfort in how well we did our Christian life. And if that is your measure of how well you did your Christian life and that's where you have assurance, you will have no assurance. Because we'll find out this is that we continually fall short of what we should be. But we have such a high priest that has accomplished this full and complete work. He saves to the uttermost. Our salvation is not by law. Our salvation is not by how well we do our Christian life. Our salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. And if you're a Christian, this is something we have now. Not only do we see is he the sufficient high priest, a fitting high priest, but we see he's separated as our high priest You notice what it says in the verse. I'll just read for the whole context, verse 26. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And then it goes into the attributes of the high priesthood. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. He's separated from sinners. And he's exalted above the heavens. And just stick with this idea of being the high priest. The high priest was someone that was chosen by God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you see this idea in verse 1 of chapter 5 is that every high priest is chosen. Well, how was Christ chosen? You get to verses 8 through 10, chapter 5. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated, that is being chosen by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So before we even get into the attributes of Christ as high priest, the first thing that we see is that Christ as high priest is chosen of God. He was chosen of God. What were the attributes of a high priest? We don't have time to look at all of them, but I just want to give you a glimpse of it this morning so we can kind of get an idea of of what was required to be a high priest in the Old Covenant system. You see in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 18, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. 
A man blind or lame, or one who has mutilated face or a limb too long. You think about that for a second. That would disqualify you from the priesthood if you had, a, you had one arm that was a little bit longer than the other one. And we kind of chuckle about that, but why was that? was because God required that perfection to be in his priest. And you can just continually read on about what their qualifications for marriage were, what their qualifications for dress were. They had to wear a certain clothing. They had to be sanctified. They had to be removed and set apart. They were to be completely different. And that idea that they were to be sanctified, that they were to be set apart, it means this is that the high priest was removed from a normal way of life and set aside for special use by God. They did not have a normal life. They were distinct. And one of the things that they were supposed to, supposed to be distinct of the priesthood was the idea of holiness. It says that our high priest is holy, but we, we ought to note that idea of holiness was also supposed to be in the priesthood. In Exodus chapter 29, in verse 21, we, we read this, Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy... And his sons and his sons' garments with him. This isn't even necessarily speaking of the man. This is speaking of the clothes he wears. That they're to be holy. They're to be set apart. They're to be made different. And now I have to ask this question. Is what made the garments holy? And what we have to recognize about it is this. And just frankly, I think we can understand this because some people are superstitious about things and material things. The garments themselves were not holy. They were made of thread. They were woven by mere men. So they in themselves, intrinsically, inherently, were not holy. There was nothing special about them. There's nothing special about the clothing we wear. It's just clothing. And their clothing was just clothing as well. But it says that it was to be holy. It was supposed to be made different. Well, here's the thing. It was made holy by faith and obedience to what God commanded. That's what made it holy. But they, those garments in and of themselves, were not holy. They were just simply made of thread. And we have to get this down inside of us. Is all of the things that we are told in the Old Testament that we are said, they are said to be have made been made holy? If they had to have been made holy, what does that tell us about them? They weren't actually holy. What do we see of Christ? It is fitting indeed that we have such a high priest, holy. Holy. Christ 
is holy. You see, in Acts 2, 27, he is described as the Holy One. And what's amazing about that is that Acts chapter 2, verse 27, is referencing Psalm 16, which says, Your Holy One shall not see corruption in Sheol. Which is a description of the coming Messiah. That He is Holy. Now, there's several ways that we ought to see and understand the idea of holy. It has to do with the priesthood that we see is that Christ and every priest is chosen. The first thing that we want to see about Christ is that he is the elect of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown. That's speaking of Christ. He was, it's the same word from which we get our word election. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what was made manifest in this last times for the sake of you. So if we think of holy as a setting apart, then Christ is holy in his being set apart. You see in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 that he was appointed. He's set apart by God. In the London Confession of Faith, it says on the, on the chapter of Christ as our mediator, it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. He's holy in that He's set apart, He's appointed, He's chosen by God for His mission. But that's not all that we should understand about this holiness of Christ. We have to understand that Christ in His nature, unlike the garments of the priesthood, unlike those things that were sprinkled with blood and set apart and sanctified and said that they were now holy, unlike those things that were made holy, Christ in His very nature is holy. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is holy by nature of His divinity. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says that when Isaiah is given a glimpse of of the throne room of God, the cherubim are singing and proclaiming day and night, holy, holy, holy. When you read the Gospel of John, it says that Isaiah saw him and his glory. Who is him? Christ in his nature is holy, holy, holy. This is why Christ could be worshipped. There was never a point when Christ wasn't holy according to his divine nature. Remember, we hold to the two natures, one person of Christ, that he is truly God, he is truly man. There's never a point where God is not holy. Jesus is always holy. But in his human nature... Think of just some of the passages of Scripture that we see of Christ in His humanity. The Father says in the Transfiguration, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Would the Father say that of His Son if the Son was not holy perfectly? You think about all the points where Christ was obedient to the will of the Father. That He willingly went to the cross 
Christ in his humanity was perfectly holy. He was pure. As John Owen says, his nature was pure and holy, absolutely free from any spot or taint of our original defilement, end quote. Christ didn't have to be made holy through some sort of ceremonial law. Christ, by nature of his person, is holy and forever. That's not the only attribute. You also see that not only is he holy, but that he's innocent. Now, a lot of these seem to say the same thing in just different words, and I admit there is quite a bit of overlap, but there's some nuance that we we ought to recognize here. That he is innocent, that is speaking of his life towards God and neighbor. Whereas holy refers to a positive statement of holiness, he is holy, the idea of innocent refers to the fact that there is no unholiness in him. There was never any unholiness in him. He never does, never did evil. You think of what Peter says of him in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ never rebels against God. Christ never defies the law of God. Christ never treated his neighbor poorly. Christ always perfectly loved his neighbor as he was supposed to. Christ always loved his heavenly Father perfectly. There was never a time where he didn't fail to love neighbor and God. That's what it means that he's innocent. Which makes passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God. It makes those passages so incomprehensible that he who knew no sin that was innocent always loved God, always loved neighbor perfectly was made sin. That he who knew no sin took on human flesh. You think of Isaiah 53, which we recently looked at. It was for our sins, it was for our transgressions. He was innocent. Let me say something that should be encouraging about this is whereas Christ was perfectly innocent, we know we're not. We know that we fail to love our neighbor as we should. We know that we fail to love God as we should. Here's the great news. Go back to what it says. We have a high priest that never failed in those things. Whereas we may fail, our high priest never, ever once failed. And he is our high priest. That should encourage us this morning. For we all carry a burden of our own sin and knowledge of our sin. We recognize it. We know with it. We have to live with ourselves. But our high priest never failed. And he stands on behalf of us right now, innocent. Not only was he holy, is holy, innocent, but he's also unstained. Uh, Unstained means this, is that he does not contract stain from others. 
That might be kind of tricky to understand, but as he was surrounded by sinful people, he never himself became stained by their sin. You think of how James used this. this. He says, chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And there's that language there, unstained from the world. What does that mean? Is that in our surroundings, we can become stained by the world. So when it says he was unstained, it means the world never impacted the holiness of Christ. You think of on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, just by way of contrast to understand this idea that he was unstained. In Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 15 it says, this is on the Day of Atonement, this is what the priest was supposed to do. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the tabernacle itself had to be cleansed. Why did the tabernacle have to be cleansed? Since nothing impure was supposed to ever go in. Well, the text tells us because the tabernacle was amongst sinful people. It was stained. Certain realities would bar a Levitical priest from their duties. If a Levitical priest got leprosy or was unclean, they would become stained by that. We have a high priest that was unstained. His surroundings never stained him. And we see here that he was separated from sinners. We were discussing this last night in our time of family worship, and the question came up, well, hold on, Christ was with His people all the time. How could He be separated from sinners? And Romans chapter 8, verse 3 tells us that He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. So what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he was separated from sinners in terms of his communion with sinful people. It doesn't mean that he was separated from sinners in the fact that he wasn't near them and he didn't, he didn't interact with them. In fact, just, you know, you think of passages like Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11 where we read this, And when the Pharisees saw this, he said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, anywhere he went, was surrounded by sinners. He couldn't escape sinners as he walked this earth because everyone's sinful. What does it mean that he's separated from sinners? Well, John Owen's helpful here. He says in, in terms of sin and its nature, its causes and effects, he's separated from that. He was distinguished. 
He himself was not part of it. In part, that's why people hated him. His light exposed their own darkness. Christ truly is the man of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of mockers. Christ never, ever sat in the counsel of the wicked. Christ never stood in the way of sinners. Christ never sat in the way of a mocker. He was separated from sinners, yet he was among sinners. And how different is Christ from us in that? Now just think about this for a second. Think about Peter. Not in his his denial of Christ the three times, though we could use that as a reference. I'm talking about when he's confronted by Paul... Because when the Judaizers came around and started imposing legalism, Peter started to adopt eating the Levitical way of eating. Even though he was free to eat any way he wanted. Peter was influenced by those people around him. The Judaizers were not Christians. The Judaizers were wicked people. And even Peter is influenced by people that were sinful around him. And so what the point is, is that Christ was never influenced. And so let me just say this by you. If you ever get discouraged by the fact that when you're in the world and it influences you because it will influence you, and you get discouraged that you want to have a greater impact on people than than what you're having... If you get discouraged in that and you walk away and go, boy, I looked more like the world than I look like Christ just now. Be be encouraged that Christ was separate from sinners on our behalf. Christ was separated from sinners on our behalf because we couldn't be. Christ never told one sinner away from me, for I'm too holy for you to come to me. Think about that. Christ was separated from sinners in that he himself was holy, but he never told people, don't come near me. Don't come to me. That's amazing. Just think about that. He was around Judas constantly. He was around Pharisees constantly. He was around ignorant crowds that only wanted a meal rather than to feast on the word of life. He was around people that that just wanted something from him rather than to feed on his flesh and drink of his blood and receive eternal life. He was just around those that wanted things from them, but he would call them to him. Christ was among those that would abuse him and say, forgive them. You think of what a merciful Savior that we have, yet separated from sinners, but Christ was always among sinners. What would keep us from coming to Him? What would keep us from coming to Him for salvation? What would keep us from coming to Him when we need comfort? What would keep us coming from coming to Him when we need encouragement? What would keep us from coming to Christ who was amongst sinners, separated, unstained by them? This is an amazing thing. 
Let me ask you a question. Do you have access to high and powerful people? I'm going to assume you don't. I'm, I'm going to assume that you couldn't send the King of England a text message and say, hey, do you got a moment I needed to talk to you? You probably can't call the President of the United States and have a conversation with him. You don't have the mind of the most powerful innovators in our time. You probably can't call Elon Musk and ask him how to reboot your computer or Bill Gates. You probably don't have access to the most powerful people in this world, the movers and shakers of this world. But do you see what the text of Scripture is telling us? The one that was separated from sinners, that was never stained by them, we have his access? That's remarkable. We have him as our great high priest. That's something we are said to have as the one that was separated from sinners. We see that he was also exalted high above the heavens. And this has been stated throughout the book of Hebrews is that he was exalted In fact, the beginning of Hebrews in verse 4 says, having become as much superior to angels, or excuse me, in verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is speaking of him being exalted. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This idea that he has ascended, he is in heaven. It's, it's amazing what we see of Christ in the fact that He has ascended. I don't think we think about Him being at the right hand of the majesty on high enough and the implications of that. It says in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, that Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Heaven received him. And I, I just want you, I just want us to meditate on this for a second. And think about all that Hebrews has said. Christ is truly God and truly man. In the building of the temple, Solomon says in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, that the highest heavens cannot contain God. Not even the heavens can contain Jesus, but yet Jesus is in heaven. That's incomprehensible. This idea that He is in the heavens, it encapsulates everything that has been said here about the idea of holiness being set apart. The idea of innocence, the idea of purity, the idea of being separated, that, that, that whole entire idea of the otherness of Christ as high priest is all summarized in these words. He is exalted high above the heavens. What does that mean? Well, there's so many things that can be drawn out of this, but just for starters... Ephesians 1, 20 says, 
He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He has put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of God, who fills all and all. The fact that he is exalted high above the heavens is a reference to his sovereign rule over all things. You're worried about persecution, Hebrews? That's the point. He is over all things. He has power over all dominions. He has power over all rulers. He has power over all kings. Christ is sovereign over them, and we have him as our high priest. Do we think he doesn't know our struggles. We think he doesn't know our trials. Does he, we think he doesn't understand the doubts and the fears that we have. No, of course, he's exalted above the heavens and he has been placed in power and dominion over all things. He knows. And we have him. But there's also something else that we should see is all those pictures that we get in the Old Testament of what the priest does on behalf of the people. You think of the careful nature of how they had to put on their garments. And then when they would put on a vest with the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel and all of these careful details that the priest would do and to go into the Holy of Holies and you can just visually see what the priest is doing, thinking of the people, praying for the people, going before God on behalf of the people. That's the image we're supposed to have, but not here on earth, but that Christ is doing it in heaven where He has been exalted high above the heavens. He's doing those things for us. That's the picture we're supposed to be given. This is to drive us to wonderment. This is to drive us to praise. This is to drive us to worship our holy high priest. Why would I look anywhere else than to Christ in this life? Who has been highly exalted. It's a tremendous passage for us of encouragement. We see also that he is a sacrificial high priest. Look at verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the, those, those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered him up himself. Now you're beginning to see in verse 27 through verse 28 where there will be a contrast between earthly priest and Christ as priest. But the whole point here is that he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Why? It's the result of all of those attributes, that he was holy, that he was unstained. So because he was unstained, because he was holy, he didn't have to offer anything on his own behalf. What about an earthly priest? Well, Leviticus 4.3. If it is the anointed priest who sins, pause. Right away, what do we see about the priest? They sin. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. 
Before the Levitical priest could do anything, they had to offer sins for themselves. You see a rather detailed description of this in Exodus chapter 29. In verse 38, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. Why? Because they sinned. They sinned continually. That was the whole point of seeing that Christ was holy. That's the declaration of Christ holy. He didn't have to do it. But the high priest had to do it daily because they sinned daily. Now just think about this with me for a second and let's meditate here. The priests were occupied constantly and continually with the law of God and the things of God. That's what they did. They were dealing with God's word continually. But yet what do we see of them? They still sinned. And if you've been around me for more than 10 minutes, you know that I sin, and I'm not a priest, I'm just a pastor, but you know that I'm sinful, you know that every man is sinful, and these priests were sinful, but these priests were continually dealing with the things of God, continually night and day dealing with worship, and they were continually daily sinning. So what hope is there for the rest of us if they would even sin? Their sins were the same as their people's sins. They were not really holy, but rather they were rather sinful. And so we see here that Christ wasn't like that. Christ offers a one-time sacrifice. And the amazing thing is, is what it says here is that in the offer, that he offered a sacrifice, he offered up himself as the sacrifice. Not only did he offer the sacrifice, but he did this himself. He did it once for all. He did it one time. What did the priest offer? Grain, a lamb that they thought was without blemish. But that's interesting is that the priest would offer a grain offering or an animal of some sort, which means this, the priest didn't have anything of their own that they could offer. They had to offer something else. Our high priest offers himself on our behalf. Indeed, it is fitting that we have such a high priest. And so, friends, be encouraged this morning that if you are in Christ, everything that we've read is applied to you. Whereas Christ is exalted and seated in the heavenly places, you are seated there with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. That is our reality of what we have in Christ. Why would we look to anyone else other than our merciful and great high priest? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, the truthfulness of it. We thank you for what we have in Christ as our great high priest. We pray that, Father, we would be encouraged by your word this morning. We pray that we would be encouraged to seek after Christ in all things by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.